commemorating history, how and by whom are decisions made. First, let me add a proviso that everything I present, as always, is from my opinion, my perspective. I'm not representing any of the organizations that do commemoration. I work with a lot of the organizations and give support, but they each have their own ways of commemorating, so I, but I don't speak for them. And so I want to look about how things have been done historically, some of the trends I've noted and how things I've seen. The beautiful thing about commemoration is that really no one owns it. Because commemoration is, in fact, a very broad thing. There are many ways people are commemorating things every day. They commemorate people, places, events. And so commemoration simply is recalling and showing respect, serving as a memorial too, and celebrating something by doing or building something. And if you want to think about how broad commemoration is, if I say Battle of New Orleans, or the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald, I would imagine at least some of you have songs running in your head right now. And so from songs, from art, from music, from plays, there are so many ways things are commemorated. And so when I'm talking today, I'm going to be looking at more of the uh, more of the concrete ways. But keep in mind that anybody can commemorate anything in so many different ways, and this is a broad category. Now, there are many ways, as I said, things are commemorated. So first, I just want to walk through some here in southern Alberta that we have. On the top, we have new signs that have gone downtown, where we have the numbered uh, name, and then the original name, Glynn Street, which is 7th Street South today, named after one of the investors. And so naming of streets is certainly one of the ways things are commemorated. I do have to tell you that we have permission mm -hmm. by that, I mean myself and a small group, we are going to be naming the downtown back alleys. <laughs> and uh, we'll, the signs are we're still reading the signs, and you'll be able to read the QR code, and it'll tell you who that person was. And the way we came about, they've all been named, they just haven't been put out. Is the rich people got the streets? <laughs> the people who use the back alleys are getting the back alleys, and it is everything from bootlegger to our first health inspector because certainly health inspectors spend more time in back alleys than people realize having to check things out. And so naming of streets is certainly part of it, and there are various ways they are named in Lethbridge. On the bottom is the Shackleford Industrial Park. I don't know if you realize it is the practice in Lethbridge to name our industrial parks after our mayors. So we have the newest one, which is the Sharing Industrial Park. We have Shackleford Industrial Park, and we have Anderson Industrial Park. And so each one named after mayor. There's also Churchill Industrial Park. He just needs to slip in every place. So um, not quite a mayor, but you get the idea. And then, of course, we have the Cenotaph. And the Cenotaph, which every small community has a Cenotaph or War Memorial. Um, going through the states and having been down for a conference in Washington, D.C. earlier this year, somebody was, and I can't remember the number, but somebody was commenting how many Civil War memorials there are and how few civil rights memorials there are. <laughs> and so it's interesting, um, you know, the wars, tremendously traumatic, had a great effect, but really small times in our history that have many commemorations around them. And so we need to think also about what are the things that are gradual that aren't commemorated. And, um, and also, they're doing a Gulf Gardens plan, and i got to put a plug in, the cenotaph is in the wrong place. It needs to go home. <laughs> Some of the other things, of course, buildings named after people. We have Evil Six uh, Cornerstone at the um, 
I'm sorry, Frick Sick um, was laid by Emil Sick. It's for the Frick Sick Memorial. Cornerstone there. We have the Comine Kiosk in the River Valley. We have Helen Schuler's Nature Center. And we have Jim Schott outside, um, which is actually Axel Tawawa Park. Um, it's in the Blackfoot name, the name of the park, but there is a plaque beside the park that you can stop and read. So getting parks named after you. Many ways things can be commemorated. We also, of course, have um, the group in the top. I'm sure many of you recognize many of the ladies sitting there. Um, that is um, five of the six members of the Legacy Ridge Committee who worked on getting the whole area of Legacy Ridge named after women of Southern Alberta history. Um, and so we have complete subdivisions named after areas. Um, we have the Colbanks area, which even if they didn't really mean to make it a historic area, certainly has a historic connection to it. We have the Yates Memorial, so you can get a building named after you. Does anybody recognize the monument in front? Yep. Yeah, it's the irrigation monument. Um, so all the irrigation districts got together just over 50 years ago and put together that monument to the history of irrigation. And they also did a scroll listing all of the different irrigation districts that have operated in the area, um, which was presented to the City Hall and then to the Gulf Museum. Um, so that memorial there is the irrigation one. If you want to get a really good system of, of commemoration, just walk around City Hall um, or anywhere in Lethbridge. Um, the Historical Society has actually documented all the plaques and monuments in Lethbridge. And the old archivist at the Galt, uh, Greg Ellis, used to say that historians in Lethbridge have seen more plaque than most dentists ever will. <laughs> because we have over 200 plaques and monuments around Lethbridge, if you actually know where to find them. Um, we have art projects, and I have the Allied Arts celebration of their 50th anniversary. You'll see the, the ball there that's on um, 7th Street. And then if you haven't had a chance to look at the masonry outside City Hall, take a time. If you're ever bringing anybody to Lethbridge and you have 10 minutes to show them the entire history of Lethbridge, just walk along the masonry by City Hall. Um, it's beautiful, the different categories there. And then, of course, we have a road sign down in the little area by Highway 3. Um, I, as again, I was just back in the States. They, Montana does road signs much better than we do. They're too much funny. And then a few more. We have the Hungarian Monument outside Yates. Um, we have the guns at the east end of Henderson Lake. Um, the guns, <laughs> Jean here is going to kill me, but guns need a plaque because everybody thinks they're Canadian guns. <laughs> they are, of course, German guns. They were war booty from the First World War. Uh, the city actually asked for four guns and an airplane. We got two guns. They have been in various places around the city, but they have been for a number of decades now at Henderson Lake. And then, of course, the plane that is at the region. So if we think of commemoration in a broad sense, there is a great deal of commemoration. Some of it is done publicly. Some of it is done privately. But even the private ones, if you want to do a monument or a plaque, depending if it's on a private or a public property, you have different regulations. If it's in the public area, the city has a monument policy, they have plaques policy. There's a lot of work to go through. And if you want to do any monuments or anything, one of the things they're going to ask you is do you have money to keep going? Uh, easy to put something up, but who's going to maintain it, that sort of stuff. So there are a lot of policies around these. And there is a lot of ongoing maintenance of a lot of these. So certainly they're there. 
But say you want something more formally designated. Perhaps you want a building named after you someday, or you want something like that. So what to do? So you want something named after you? Some of what I'm going to say is a little facetious. I apologize. But even though it's tongue-in-cheek, it's meant sincerely as well. If you want something named after you, die at the right time. Because <laughs> usually you have to be in people's recent memory to have something named after you. I wish everything was done in a very objective manner. Like, you know, somehow we ranked every person who's ever been associated with Southern Alberta history, and we took the ones who have done the most, and they get things named after them. It doesn't work that way. Um, and so a lot of times it's, when you look back, you know, 30, 40, 100 years, you go, why on earth did that person get something named after them? And so it's often, they're in recent memory when something's named. You also want to make sure you have advocates. Have a lot of children and grandchildren and things like that. That helps. Or be involved with a lot of organizations that are going to promote you after you're gone. Um, so some kind of advocacy. It, and I, it's the passionate advocacy of people that often is one of the reasons people get things named after them because they are promoted in a way that's very hard to say no. And they will come back. Uh, Legacy Ridge, when you actually talk to some of the members of that committee, how long it took them to get anything going and how many times they heard no. And no has to just be a maybe in your head every time you hear it. For a lot of these, you have to keep going on and on. Not surprisingly, have money or have access to money because funding for things is going to be useful. So if there is some way that they can help to pay for whatever commemoration you want, that is useful. Have a well-known story. Have a story that is talked about, that has been written down. Don't make it difficult for somebody to research. Now, I say this because there are so many people who have done so many things, but often we get what's called, what I refer to as pocket history. It might be known in the sports area, it might be known by one ethnic group, it might be known by a certain area of town, but it's not a well-known story. So if you want something named after you, just make sure your story is everywhere. And I'll give you some examples of people who are amazing, but their story is not well-known. Anybody been up to Edmonton recently? In the last few years, Edmonton has named Hetu Park, or Hetu Lane and Bowler Park. Now, these stories are rather interesting because both of these people have a Lethbridge connection. Uh, Bertha Hetu, uh, 1864 to 1943, according to the designation of Hetu Lane, she lived in Lethbridge for well over a decade. And so I thought, here's somebody who's well known enough in Edmonton to get something named after her. She was here for over 10 years. According to the research, she was an entrepreneur in Lethbridge. I can't find any records of her in our normal things in Lethbridge. So whatever she did here, did not get recorded here. So if we were looking at designations in Lethbridge, she doesn't even come up in our records. But in Edmonton, there's enough records and information that she was found or known well enough to get named there. Uh, Bowler Park is another one. See if I can make sure. Um, this gentleman who came from India, Sohan Singh Bowler, was an early immigrant, came in Canada in 1907, and he too lived in the Lethbridge area for a number of years around the First World War. He then worked on a farm, went into farming, went to Edmonton in 1953, and helped immigrants and students from India. And again, I tried to find any record of him and his time here in Lethbridge. 
And the only time I found, and there's a name close, it is Sohan Singh, but not Sohan Singh Bowler, was fortunately running a restaurant that got arrested during Prohibition. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping it's not the same person. And that comes to the next thing that we talk about, never do anything embarrassing if you want something new to happen. <laughs> Eileen Dunham and May Annette had a much more close relationship with Lethbridge. Eileen Dunham, who was born in the U.S., came here as a very young girl, and she went through Central School, and she was known as a great brain when she went through Central School. In grade 12, she had the highest marks in the entire province of Alberta. And she went on to um, get a PhD in history in the 1920s out of London. And in a little museum, uh, little, little university college down in Ohio, she for 40 years was the chair of their history department. And to this day, since the 1960s, one of their highest scholarships is the Eileen Dunham Scholarship. Um, and the Herald, if you go back, there are articles about her throughout, but she just sort of never really had any history. And her problem with that is, you know, she never had got married or had children, so no advocacy there. Um, May Annette is actually quite fascinating. In the 1920s and 30s, six women got their PhDs in physics from the University of Toronto. The sixth person, the sixth woman to do that was May Annette from Lethbridge. And I don't know how she did this. This is what I really want to figure out. She got her bachelor, master's, and PhD completely paid for with scholarships the 1920s. So, we have all of these stories that because of nobody's written about them, because they might not have stayed someplace long, aren't well known. And I could continue, that's why I say etc. Um, you'll notice that most of the ones I told you about were women's stories. Um, I don't have any biases at all. <laughs> but there are so many more and there's, one, as I said before, in sports and in agriculture and in different cultural groups, there are so many. And that's one of the things is I wish we historians had all the time, but like anybody, we usually pick the easy stories. When somebody says, do you have an idea? You know, they want it yesterday, so you pick a story you already know rather than maybe doing the research that should have been done into it. And I said, difficult history is always hard to commemorate. This is actually a road sign out of Montana. I told you I love their road signs. And it's about the 1837 smallpox epidemic. Um, it is told from the Assiniboine perspective, but of course the border would have been uh, close by and the 1837 uh, epidemic swept through southern Alberta and all the way up to Edmonton, of course there were records of it. Um, but difficult history is often overlooked in commemoration or controversial history or people who do anything that you're not quite sure how to handle in the commemoration. So um, this is one of the things that we as a community have to to have greater discussions about. And it's also about which perspective to use, how do you tell the story. All of those are part of it as well. Now, those are sort of the broad generalizations. But maybe uh, if you want a school named after you, the school board, you do have to be deceased. You do have to be related to education. You have to have all of those. So everything that can name buildings has very specific rules. In some cases, it's almost easier not to name things after people. I think that's why the city just, in my opinion, cheated and just called the new park Legacy Park. Because you don't have to actually make a choice, it's just the legacy of everybody. Um, but even though it's difficult, you still have to make these choices. 
Well, let's get on to one of the reasons we're here today, the commemoration of mining in southern Alberta. Of course, some of you know that Galt Six Mine was recently designated a municipal historic resource. Uh, resource or we can get national, provincial, or municipal designation, all of them being done by different levels of government. The municipal designation that was came to Galt Six was through city council. They are the final say. They have the Historic Places Advisory Committee, and Jean is the LHS representative on that. They have a three-member committee that makes recommendations. They have city liaison staff, and recommendations are made, but city council gets final decision. And just earlier this year, they decided to commemorate Galt Six. Mining commemoration, as I said, in the broad context, there's a lot of different mining ways that all mining is commemorated. Worldview Memorial Cemetery was opened two years ago and has the name of the coal mine that was north of Cardiville attached. And just recently, if you're actually, if you read the subdivision maps the way I do, and you all read them, right? Um, the land north of Hardyville had just been designated Royal View Neighborhood. So that entire subdivision now will be also known as Royal View. We have the coal mine kiosk in the River Valley. We have the Here We Begin to Mine, the coal monument, both of those from the 1960s. We have the whole Coalhurst Mine Disaster Monuments in both the cemeteries, um, the Coal Banks neighborhood on the west side, and many other ways. But when we're looking at what was recent, the one thing people are surprised by is this wasn't designated. Why is it Galt 6 and not Galt 8? And certainly I have my own, my own opinions on here. Uh, in my opinion, Galt 8 is by far the better site. Um, the buildings are there. It's such an amazing opportunity for an interpretive center, for a tourist site, to have great in-depth opportunity to tell the story of southern Alberta. But I also appreciate it is an industrial site. It has a cleanup cost to it. It is a huge site. It is not owned by the city. So I can appreciate all the different reasons for why they chose to go instead with Galt 6. And I don't think in their mind it was an either or, but that's certainly how people are seeing it. So instead of Galt 8, Galt 6 Hardyville has been designated. Now, I said to you that as a site, Galt 8 is better. As a story, Galt 6 is way better. And as a historian, it's the stories that really attract me. For one reason, does anybody know how old the mainframe, the tipple at Galt 8 is? It's 1908, because it's the Hardyville tipple. So when Hardyville closed, they actually took down the mainframe, the tipple, redeveloped it, and set it up at Galt 8. So that actually is the Hardyville building that you see over there under the new change. And this is one of the things that makes Hardyville so fascinating. Because very little research has gone into Hardyville, having this area designated has made myself and others really research Hardyville. And there are others doing this as well. And from a historian's perspective, Hardyville offers amazing opportunities. Just to give you a sense, when Royal View closed, they took the old mining office from Royal View, moved it into Hardyville, where it became a hotel. But the first hotel from Hardyville, as well as the church from Hardyville, which was originally the Presbyterian Church and became the Catholic Church, both of them were moved to Colvale to be used as a hospital and a church, respectively. Oh no, it gets more fun. <laughs> when Hardyville closed, the miners, who went, mostly went to work at Galt 8, simply dragged their houses into Lethbridge, and around 9th Avenue, where 12A, B, C are, half those houses are actually Hardyville houses originally. Oh, no, no. 
Trust me, Hardyville has more to tell. When Royalview closed, some of the miners took their houses from Royalview to Hardyville. One took his house, dismantled it, put it in a boxcar, moved it to Milk River, then to 117, where he put it back together as his farmhouse. Unfortunately, that house is now gone, but there are houses potentially in the Milk River area, which are Hardyville houses. And then when they decided to close the River Valley from houses after the 1953 flood, they took houses and stores from the River Valley and moved them to Hardyville. So Hardyville, not only through the lives of the miners, but the buildings, through everything, is the history of coal mining in general as well. And there are some amazing stories there to tell. Hardyville at one time had about 600 people living there. Hardyville has also, because I love Hardyville, they just randomly changed their street numbers four times. It used to be 1st Street to 3rd Street, 1st Avenue to 5th Avenue. Then they took on 11, 12, and 13th Street, but kept 1st Avenue to 5th Avenue. Then for a time, they gave every street names, but switched the avenues and the streets in opposite directions of how they used to be. <laughs> and now they have 11, 12, 13th Street, 40th to 44th Avenue. <laughs> yeah. So trying to figure out which house has, was owned by which person, I have this giant spreadsheet now, because I... Thanks to the tax records of the school division from 1936, I know the houses that were there in 35, 36, I know their legal addresses, and so I know the legal addresses today, and if I can match the right name to the legal address, I can now figure out who lived in that house the whole way across, <laughs> under four different street addresses. <laughs> Hardyville, like I said, has a story to tell of so many ways, and it's making us really look into the history. Through Facebook, through um, all sorts of things, through speaking to you today, we've been talking to a lot of people who were born in Hardyville and asking them to help us with the stories. And we're getting it. You'll notice we have some pictures down below. Um, the top one, uh, the one that's really hard, that's the old hotel that became the uh, second hospital in Coaldale. And on the other corner we have, if you see that peak, you know you have an old coal mine cottage. Um, and it's interesting, the original cottages were built in 1908. Thomas Stubbs, if you were starting a coal mine 100 years ago, you seem to have given him a call. He built the old coal mine cottages in Coleman and in Hardyville and a few other places. And we have one 1908 building left in Hardyville. And we know it's 1908, but I'm trying to prove it's a Thomas Stubbs house, one of the original. But we'll see if I can actually prove that. And then different people through email, through Facebook, have sent me some family pictures because we have very few pictures of Hardyville. And then we have the church, which was, um, again, originally Presbyterian, sold to the Catholics, renamed Our Lady of Lords, and then sold to Coaldale, where it had a third name, and then unfortunately lost the fire. And so this, to me, is what commemoration is, when it's really well done. It's about finding all those stories and putting it together. Having a name on is one thing, and we hope when the park is developed, a lot of these stories will be told. But to me, what's even better, I now have a 150-page document on the history of Hardyville that I've been putting together the last year and a half, where if you'd asked me two years ago about Hardyville history, in document form, we had virtually nothing. And so uh, this is why I'm glad Galt 6 is being recognized in this way, because Hardyville story is finally going to be told. And if you're from Staffordville, we'll get around to that at some point, too because that's another area that's not well told. And if you're from Rolog, well, there was only like 10 of you, so that's okay. <laughs> you guys do know where Rolog was now. 
So in brief, commemoration is so many things done in so many ways with decisions made by a lot of people. And if you don't like how something's commemorated, the beautiful thing is you can go and do it yourself. Write a song. I can't write a song. Maybe you can. But lots of it. Thank you so much, and hopefully I'm on pretty good time.